Okay, grab your electronic devices. Do you know, do you remember what this is? You might want to grab that too. And turn to Romans. All right, there are 7,114 words in the book of Romans. Uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. My love letters to Nancy when she was in Moscow for a year were not this long. Uh, No one writes letters this long. No one. In fact, in the Greco-Roman world of the first century, which is 57 AD, the length of this is unheard of. Can you imagine being a a leader of the church and you get this letter and the leaders, I can imagine them looking at each other and going, what are we supposed to do with this? If we read this, it's going to take hours. Better ask Hank to go get the sleeping bags. I mean, what? forever, right? Uh, Paul's letter to the Romans is not only his longest letter, but it possibly could be the longest letter in the first century on record. So Paul has two literary awards that he gets that you might not know about. And I, I'm here to enlighten and help us know this. He has on record the longest Koine Greek sentence in ancient literature. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14 is one long sentence. And the verb, the main verb, you would expect some like powerful action word that ties it all together. No, it's not even mentioned. It's assumed and it's the to be word. (laughs) Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he runs on forever in verse, to verse 14. He also has the record, possibly for the longest letter in the first century, which is right here. So why are we going to do Romans? Why Romans? What do you think? The world-famous preacher and biblical scholar and leader of Christianity, a statesman, John Stott, for much of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, he wrote, I have a love-hate relationship with Romans. Why do you think he had a love-hate relationship? You know what his answer is? He says, because of its joyful, painful, personal challenges. Why Romans? Augustine, a 4th century bishop of Hippo, it's now Nigeria, this is the 300s, is perhaps the most popular pastor in the history of the church. Every church tradition claims him as their own and uses his theology of the scriptures as kind of like the seed for their whole theological system. I should say everyone likes them and everyone follows them except for Pelagians, but that's no big deal. All right, he grew up with a Christian mother, but he wanted nothing to do with her faith. Augustine loved to have fun, and there's nothing wrong with loving to have fun. I could use that gift in my life. I'm not a fun guy, but I got a fun wife, I got fun kids, so that helps out. So if you don't have fun people, you need to find fun people to be around if you're not a fun person, right? Please do that for us. Um, But when fun, the love for fun, mutates into the worship of it, things get a little crazy. He worshipped sexual pleasure. He worshipped the sexual attention of women, and it was multiple women. So much so that he had a child out of marriage. It broke his mom's heart. His life was kind of teetering, and he was kind of in a really hard place, and so he wandered into a church one day, and a guy that was preaching was a guy named Ambrose. And when he left, he said he couldn't shake off what he heard. 
And he says this, he actually wrote it down. The tumult of my heart took me out into the garden where no one could interfere with the burning struggle within myself which I was engaged. I was twisting and turning in my chains. Suddenly I heard a voice from a nearby house chanting as if it might be a boy or girl. Pick it up, pick it up and read. So I took up the book of Romans. And it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart and all the shadows of doubt were dispelled. Augustine's theology has exerted more influence on the church than any other churchman in all of church history. Do you know what shaped his theology? Romans. Why Romans? John Calvin, anybody know that name? He's not very popular. Um, a pastor theologian of the Reformed Presbyterian tradition. You know what he said? He says, if we gain a true understanding of this epistle, we open a door to the most profound treasures in all of scripture. He's saying the book of Romans is like opening a door to a treasure house. Why Romans? Perhaps the most famous collision with Romans was who? Martin Luther in the 1500s. Luther was a German monk. He said he grew to hate God. Why? That's a good question. This is what he said. Because God required of him things he could not do. Therefore, he was imprisoned in a perpetual state of failure. And he hated it. And he hated God for it. But this didn't stop him from trying. He quit law school, broke his dad's heart, went into the ministry, became an Augustinian monk, right? And he said one day he is studying Romans 1, 16 and 17. He says he's pushing on it, pulling on it. He said he's sweating, textual sweat, as he's trying to get this passage to yield itself to him. And finally he says, it wasn't even in my exertion. It was just like an effortless door opened up to him and he said thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise I love this phrase I broke through and so began the Protestant Reformation the single greatest movement of God's spirit on the church since Pentecost Luther said of Romans, this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only of every Christian knowing it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. Thomas Schreiner said, Luther's understanding of Romans has been the most significant impact in exegesis since Augustine. And its impact is impacting you and me today, end quote. Why Romans? Why Romans? Because Romans is about the gospel. Because Romans releases the gospel. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. We're going to read Romans 1, verses 1 through 17. Romans 1, 1 through 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, 
concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it is written, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh God, we ask that you would give and grant what this great, um, what this great letter of yours entails. Would you open our minds and work in our hearts? Oh God, would you fill us with your spirit? And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. All right, here's the plan. We're gonna do Romans one through five in the spring. We're gonna take a break during the summer. Then we're gonna tackle Romans six through eight in the fall, take a break during the winter, and then finish Romans 9 through 12 in the spring of 2016. So, we're going to be in Romans for a good part of a year. I'm not doing Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I have no aspirations of having 20-something volumes on the book of Romans. And I have no aspirations of preaching for, I think he preached it for like eight years in his church. Can you imagine that? Uh, what we are going to do is that we're going to take a chunk every semester of Romans, maybe 10 to 11 sermons, and then we're going to mix it up and have series in between them and see what series will happen depending on what happens in Romans. So everything's going to assist Romans. Uh, I've told you that I have um, hesitated on preaching this book because it's just so daunting to think of Romans. And you know what one of my good friends said? So Jeff, what do you have, a canon within the canon? You think Romans is like special than all the other books of the Bible? I was like, thanks, Shaner, for sharing that with me. So I accepted his rebuke and am not as intimidated right now about Romans, thanks to him, right? What we're going to do today is we're going to look at Paul's thesis. So look at Romans 1, 16 and 17. This is his thesis. All of Romans is packed into these two verses. So if Romans was a magic hat, you would, if, if Romans 1, 16 and 17 was a, rat, a magic hat and you reached in, you'd pull out the rabbit of the whole book. The whole book of Romans is concentrated in two verses. It's the thesis. It's the outline. The rest of the book, all it's going to do is just pull out the wonder and the enjoyment and the realities of what's in 116 and 17. 
So we've got we've to hit 1, 16 and 17. So what's the point of one, Romans 1, 16 and 17? What's the big idea? Can you find it? See if you can find it. If you can't, go this way. Whatever it is, whatever that driving, dominating, defining, active, working, lively point is, it's the answer to why Romans... It's the answer to why Romans for Augustine. It's the answer to why Romans for Luther. It's the answer to why Romans for Calvin. It's the answer to why Romans for the Protestant Reformation. It's the answer to why Romans for you and me. Look at 16a. Here it is. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. What is the gospel? The definition and the answer is going to be found in verses 1 through 15. Paul defines it for us. But I want you to not think of Webster's. It's not a Webster's-like definition. Here's what it's like. The definition is like, I want you to think of skydiving at 14,000 feet. The first 60 seconds are a free fall. Then you have a, a canopy fall, a controlled fall for the next 10 minutes. It is exhilarating, it is thrilling, and it is terrifying at the same time. You will feel like you're in control and you will feel like you're out of control. And all I'm going to say is that we're going to look at that next week. So we're not even going to define the gospel this morning. So I'm going to say this. What the gospel is, we could say this. Here's a test. If the gospel, if you think the gospel is something you do or something that happens inside of you, here's what I want you to know right now. That's not the gospel. Okay? So, Right now, when you're thinking about the gospel, if it's something you do, something that happens inside of you, you can know that's not the gospel, okay? Next week, we'll define it. Now, look at what immediately follows the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel for, we're going to find throughout propositional literature, this literary bucket that God is in the grammar. Four is giving you the reason he's not ashamed of the gospel. He's giving you the reason for why Romans. He's giving you the reason for why the gospel. What's the answer? For the gospel is the power of God. Why Romans? Why the gospel? Because it's the power of God. I remember the moment it happened. And when it did, it haunted me. And it haunted me for three years. I remember the exact moment I was on a beach in New Jersey called Wildwood Beach. And I was a campus minister. It was the summer before I went overseas for a year to start campus ministries in the Soviet Union and would meet my wife. And then we would come back to Boston for three years go to seminary, and then come here and plant this church. So this is very epic for me, what happened here. I remember I was talking to a group of 20-somethings. I was telling them about Jesus. And while I was telling them about Jesus, this thought rang in my head and my heart, and I couldn't shake it. I went like this. The only time you hear about Jesus is when you're telling other people about Jesus on the beach like this or when you're doing evangelism. What relevancy does Jesus, now I'm thinking to myself, what relevancy does Jesus have to me as a Christian? 
how can I be doing so much ministry and have a relationship with someone I don't even know? Three years, I thought about what does Jesus have to do with the Christian life? I know what he means for those that need to get in it. But what does he have to do once you're in it? Wadley respected church historian, and he's a church historian that specializes on spiritual awakenings and revivals. You know what those are? Those are, those are moments in history where ordinary, normal Christianity goes on steroids. It's not a new kind of Christianity that happens in a revival. It's not a new kind of Christianity that happens in a spiritual awakening. It's just normal Christianity. But what God ends up doing is he ends up pouring out his spirit and working in a higher, potent degree of normal Christianity that, that historians say, gosh, that was an awakening. Wow, that was a revival. Well, this guy studies those. This guy specializes those. This guy is looked to in evangelical circles as an authority on them. You know what he says? Only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Jesus Christ in their lives. In other words, only a small fraction of Christians know what the relevancy of Jesus is as a Christian. He goes on to say, many have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine, but in their day-to-day existence, they rely on their sanctification for justification. Drawing their assurance, what we just talked about in that confession, drawing your assurance, drawing power for worship, drawing power for holiness, drawing healing and help and drawing community and generating worship and generating ministry, all those things. He says, drawing all those things from their sincerity, from their past experience of conversion, for their most recent religious performance or the relative infrequency of their conscious willful disobedience, end quote. Many of us have what I call a rear view mirror Jesus. And those of you that have taken the foundations class, you've heard it before, so bear with me. If the Christian life is driving a car, Jesus is the rearview mirror. And what that means is, is that whenever we want to look back on what he's done in our life, we, we look at Jesus in the rearview mirror and we look back to when, oh yeah, when he, he changed me and he worked in my life. And whenever we want to have some gratitude and we want to work up some emotional connection with him, we, we look at our rearview mirror because he's, he's something that happened in the past. But to drive my car, to live the Christian life, I've got to look through the front windshield. I hope you guys drive that way, right? If you don't, will you please text me when you're on the road and give me your exact location, right? So today the Today, we are given all kinds of front windshields to look through in the Christian life. You're given five steps for a victorious Christian living. Okay, this is how I live the Christian life. You're given two secrets on how to tap into or access the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And then you're given a a sign so you know it took. You're given three spiritual techniques on how to learn how to surrender your whole life to Jesus. Whatever that means. How do you measure a surrender? And how do you know if you've surrendered all? Well, thankfully, there are books that can tell you that, right? We are told to read our Bible more, pray harder, grow kids God's way. This is how you live the Christian life. We're told how to be a 
promise keeper so that, doggone it, I keep my promises. Sorry if that offends you. Promise keeping realities offend me. Sometimes we're told you're going to experience God, you're going to experience God in this kind of a worship service, in this kind of a book, in this kind of a preacher, right? The gospel is in my rearview mirror. But you know what Paul is saying? The gospel is the power of God. Did you catch is? Present tense. Not past tense. The gospel is the front windshield. The gospel is how you grow in the Christian life. The gospel is how community happens in a community. The gospel is how you learn to become a loving, serving, sacrificial person. The gospel transforms true biblical character and holiness in our lives. Not something else. The gospel is the power of God. There are two incredible implications here, y'all. The first one is this. Real Christianity is about power. Real Christianity is about ultimate power. Real Christianity is about the power of God. When I was in high school, um, I had a conversation with my mom. I think we were going to McDonald's. And I was telling her that uh, I really am not, I really don't like church. I don't like the youth group. I don't like what we do in church. I just don't think church is for me. And I could tell she was concerned. (laughs) And I can't tell you all the things I said to her because they weren't be appropriate. But I can't tell you the gist of what I said to her. I said, I don't want to be weak and wimpy. Do you know somebody like that? Are you like that? Or you think Christianity is for the weak and it's a crutch? You know what the Apostle Paul says? All human strength, all human power is weakness. Having millions, having the strength and the power of millions or even billions in your bank account is weakness. Having the strength and the power of the most mightiest military on the planet is weakness. Having everyone, the strength and the power of everybody loving you and everybody thinking well of you and everybody wanting to be your friend is weakness. Having breathtaking beauty is weakness. Real Christianity is power. Real Christianity is strength in your weakness. Whatever the gospel is, it's not weak words. It's not empty ideas, it's not empty concepts and empty propositions or empty images or empty stories. The gospel is living words. Power-induced words. God words. 
One pastor theologian puts it this way, and I absolutely love this phrase. He says, in the gospel, words and power come together. (laughs) I mean, they come together. He says, the gospel message is actually the power of God in verbal, cognitive form. So it lifts people up, he says. It transforms and changes things. When it's outlined, when you outline the gospel, when you explain the gospel and you reflect upon it, its power is released into your life. The gospel lifts up. The gospel changes. The gospel heals. The gospel repairs. The gospel generates hope. The gospel gives faith. The gospel pursues transformation. The gospel does all this stuff. So my question is just real simple. What are you expecting to have what do you expect to have happen when you come to Romans? This spring, we we unpack Romans. What do you want to have happen? What's your expectations? What kind of expectation do you have? I know some of us are thinking, listen, Jeff, we're going into Romans. Man, I love when you're in the Old Testament. I love judges. I love those stories. I love, you know, Ehud. I love that kind of stuff. It's entertaining. It's easier to relate to, but now you're going to start moving in a direction where you're going to talk about theology and you're going to talk about doctrine, and that actually kind of nauseates me. I, doctrine is dry and dusty and dead for me. And not only that, it's just so full of controversy. Every time you talk about doctrine, it just divides everybody. I just don't, I'm just not excited about Romans. That might be your expectation. You know, all I'm going to say to you is this. Romans releases power on you. Some of you are thinking, okay, I've heard it all, Jeff. Doggone, I did the nav memorization thing, and I've memorized the whole book. And I'm one of those guys that studies theology. I actually love theology. In fact, I study all the systematic theologies. I know all about Calvin, and I know all about Turretin, and I know all about Bavinck, and I know all about Burkhoff, and I know all about Sproul, and I know all about Michael Horton. I know all about Hodge. I've read them all. I've been to church my whole life. I've grown up in the church I've gone to break out 50 times. Yawn. You can't tell me anything I don't know. You can't tell me anything I haven't heard. Romans releases power on you. Some of you are wanting to be honest. You do and you don't. Maybe if we were alone, you'd say this to me. You'd say, Jeff, I have no expectations at all because I've given up hope of God ever connecting with me in any meaningful way. He just doesn't listen to me. He just doesn't help me. He's just not there. He's just so distant. I've tried. I've called out to him. I've read the Bible. Nothing. And I say to you, Romans, releases power on you. Romans is inviting all of us in this room to expect power. How is that for an expectation? Romans is inviting every single person that comes to hear it to expect power to be unleashed. It doesn't matter what state you come in. It doesn't matter whether you feel good or feel bad. It doesn't matter whether you hate God or believe in God. It doesn't matter what kind of state you are in at all because the gospel's releasing of power is not dependent on you and me. 
That's an incredible expectation. And so you know what that means is that you can expect to have. Remember what Luther said? I broke through. You can expect to have a gospel breakthrough when you go through Romans. To where you will grow in your understanding of exactly what this gospel is. And in growing in your understanding of it, also growing in your enjoyment of it and your experience of it so much so that you have what's called a gospel life. And that deep movements of power ripple into areas of your life you thought he would never move into. And do such a movement and a shift and a change that you actually change in areas you never thought you would change in. Your relationship with God, your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with friends, the way you handle money, the way you relate to your career, all of that you can expect power to be released into. Second implication is this, and yeah, I'll figure out how to say it. Second application is this. Real Christianity is not two-tiered. It's not two-stepped. It's not two installments. There's not one. It's not the gospel for the, the unbelieving person to hear so they come into being a Christian. And now once you're in, it's like, okay, okay, good, you're in. Now we have something else for you. Now we have those other front windshields we'd like to give to you. The gospel is not two-tiered. The gospel is, present tense, the power of God released, which means right now, right? But also notice the second answer that's given in verse 16. Do you see it? The gospel is the power of God for what? Salvation. What is salvation? You know what salvation is? The whole package a comprehensive salvation. You know what that means? I'm going to throw a bunch of words at you that at the end of our time together, you'll know what they mean. It means justification, sanctification, glorification, and renewal of the whole earth that all of this whole complete package of salvation, Jesus accomplished. He performed it. He was victorious in it. To such an extent, there's, no more, there's not any kind of work out there still needing to be done in any of those areas. So if there was another work that's out there that needs to be done, we've got to help it. We've got to assist it. And, and Paul says, no, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's done. The whole package. And this means the gospel is a present transforming power. The gospel comes into your life as a Christian and it is the engine and the transforming power that changes you and heals you and grows you, which theologically is called sanctification. Well, our church, we really need to grow in our worship. The gospel is the transforming power that generates worship. Well, we just need to develop community, not just community groups, which is great, but now within those structures, actual community starts happening. The gospel is the transforming power that actually generates friendships and community. Well, you know, we really need, ah, I'm just broken in so many different areas and, and I need a change in so many different areas. The gospel is the present transforming power of God to actually do that. The gospel is. Paul would say if we have a two-tiered Christianity, it's not real Christianity. In fact, it's being ashamed of the gospel. 
There are lots of discussions going on right now about the gospel and sanctification. My only response, and it's going to be on tape, is this. It's on tape. It made me pause for a second, Larry. (laughs) Are we ashamed of the gospel or not? Paul said he wasn't. Not for sanctification and not for justification. Romans invites you to put all your confidence in the gospel. All of it. Every ounce of confidence there. To do it to reach the unbelieving person. Where's your confidence in reaching an unbelieving person? Paul says put it in the gospel. The gospel releases power. The power of God. What about reaching me, a believing person? Put all your confidence in the gospel to reach you. And then what that means is a church's mission and a church's ministry is gospel, always. Gospel growth in people. So there is no false choice between, well, are we going to be a seeker church or a family church? Paul says, what are you talking about? He'd say, yes. Yes, you're a seeker church because the gospel is about growing in people, which means those that don't know and those that do know. There's no false choice according to Paul. Paul says you do it both because the mission is gospel growth in people. So we don't have to, you don't have to make these choices where you're going to go be this kind of church or that kind of church. It's a gospel church. All right, why is the gospel so powerful? Here's how we're going to end. Why? What is it about the gospel that makes it so powerful? We still haven't defined the gospel. We will next week. But what about this gospel is so powerful? Verse 17, for, he's going to tell us, this is the reason. This is why the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Okay, what makes it so powerful? For, in it, the righteousness of God is being, present tense again, is being revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Whatever makes this gospel so powerful, it's always been this way. For it is written, it's ancient truth. It's not new words. It goes all the way back into the Old Testament. We will spend the whole book discovering what this means, this verse means. And we will spend the whole book enjoying it. That's what Romans is all about. First, it's gonna tell us an introduction to what the gospel is. And it's going to give you what you need, why you need verse 17. And then it's going to tell you what verse 17 is for a couple of chapters. And then it's going to tell you how to enjoy it in all areas of your life, a gospel life. That's Romans. So much so, even in the civil authority room. It's every area of life. Today we're going to look at, we're going to end with one sliver of splendor. Here it is. The gospel releases the righteousness of God to you. Now I know we're just kind of like, okay, wow, that was a letdown. I want you to think of the holiness of God. And I want you to think of the perfection of God. The gospel gives you his holiness. His perfection. Do you want a solid identity? Do you want security beyond your wildest dreams? 
Do you want to be energized with life and assurance and perseverance to use the ancient language? Get that. Jesus' life and Jesus' death is the righteousness of God and the most precious commodity in the universe, this righteousness of God, now becomes a righteousness from God to you who have none. That changes lives, changes worlds, changes eternity. I'm done. Oh no, I'm not done. The gospel, Romans, invites you to not just expect the power of God to be released in your life. It actually calls you to seek it. So this morning, when we come here next week, I want you to not only expect the power of God to be released on you, seek it. Seek a deeper understanding of the gospel, whatever the gospel is. Seek a greater experience and enjoyment of the gospel, whatever it is. Seek a breakthrough, just like Luther.